Logical Progression, Year 4, Chapter 13, Lesson 2. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wal-aqibatulim nutaqeena, wa la idwana illa ala zalimeen, wa salawatullahi wa salamuhu ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in, Allahumma la sahla, illa ma ja'altahu sahla, wa anta taj'ulu al-hazna idha shi'a sahla, Allahumma a'inna ala dhikrika wa shukrika, وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته فجزاكم الله خير and welcome uh, to the second lesson uh, of كتاب الصلاة and this is a lesson which will be um, the actual official start of the text and it's a bit of a complex um, actually what's interesting about this lesson is not just the fact that many people now for the first time will be introduced to the technical intricacies of law and theology as, as, as it is in the, in the chapter of Salah, but also this is a level up now. It starts to get serious now in terms of uh, phrases and in terms of the actual level of knowledge and so on and so forth. So what I'll do first of all is that I will read to you the text that we will be covering. So I, I read this last week, but just to say it for now... Um, this is what's going to be covered in this lesson now, lesson number two. So, Kitab Salah, the, 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 the book of prayer, the introduction. تَجِبُ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ مُسْلِمٍ مُكَلَّفٍ أَوْ حَائِدٍ وَنُفَسَاءٍ إِلَّا حَائِدًا وَنُفَسَاءٍ وَيَقْدِ مَنْ زَالَ أَقْلُهُ بِنَوْمٍ أَوْ إِغْمَاءٍ أَوْ سُكْرٍ أَوْ نَحْوِهِ وَلَا تَسِحْمِ مَجْنُونٍ وَلَا كَافِرٍ فَإِنْ صَلَّ فَمُسْلِمٌ حُكْمًا ويؤمر بها صغير من سبع ويضرب عليها لعشر فإن بلغ في أثناء في أثنائها أو بعدها في وقتها أعاد ويحرم تأخيرها عن وقتها إلا لناوي الجمع ولمشتغل بشرطها الذي يحصنه قريبا. That's what we're going to cover today. So the prayer is obligated upon every legally responsible Muslim except those who are menstruating or having postpartum bleeding. It has to be made up. By anyone, that's called qada, okay, it has to be made up by anyone losing consciousness from sleep, fainting, intoxication, etc. It is not considered valid from someone who is insane or a non-Muslim. However, if a non-Muslim was to pray, we would treat him like a Muslim. Children are ordered to perform it when seven and physically disciplined for not doing it at ten. And if the child was to reach adolescence during the actual prayer or after it while still within its legal time, it is to be repeated. It is not permissible to delay the prayer beyond its time unless intending to join prayers or being involved in fulfilling one of the conditions for prayer, a condition which is close to completion. So that's the text. So straight in, okay, the prayer, tajibu ala kulli muslim. And you'll notice that in the Arabic, the prayer is not mentioned. It just says, it is obligated, okay? But in the English translation, I've written, the prayer is obligated. And we will always point these out. That in translation, okay, the translator is always using an artistic license in order to get the message across. So in actual fact, it's, it's important to understand why the author himself in the Arabic did not repeat the prayer again because he's always wanting you to refer back to the title and the key, the, the, the setting has been confirmed. We're talking about the prayer. And in Arabic, that's something which is very well known. It's very common for the subject or the issue to not be mentioned again once it's already been mentioned. In English, however, that's not so much the case. In English, you will often find that people or the author or, or modern writing is always having to repeat the subject again. So uh, even though I say the book of prayer, 
the prayer is obligated. Really, to be honest, it should be sufficient for me to say the book of prayer. It is obligated upon, do you understand what I'm trying to say? And that's exactly how Arabic works, because we always go back to the previous pronoun. When we are wondering what it is referring to, in Arabic, the qaida, yani, uh, the linguistic principle that we apply, is that you go back to the most recent uh, uh, item or subject or object or whatever that fits that pronoun, it. And that is obviously the prayer. But in English, I want to save everyone doing that hard work, so I just put in the prayer. So the prayer is obligated upon every legally responsible Muslim. Tajib from wajaba, the word wajib. Now the word wajib is an interesting one. The word wajib uh, linguistically uh, comes from the verb wajaba and wajaba means to fall down. When something falls down upon its side. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, when we slaughter the animals, we slaughter the cattle and their sides fall down. Okay, Meaning that they uh, collapse to the ground. So something is settled and it is done. It is established. So this means obligation. So technically speaking, the word wajib means obligatory. However, as many of you will know, because you uh, and your parents and your, your ethnicity, South Asian, Hanafi uh, uh, background, the Hanafi school from the four schools of, of, of fiqh, the Hanafi school has a slightly different meaning or has a, they have a slightly different definition for the word wajib compared to what the other scholars have. So the mass majority of scholars... The three imams of fiqh and the majority of the rest of the ulama, they all refer to wajib like we do in the linguistic sense, which means obligatory. Now what does obligatory mean? Can anyone give me a definition of what obligatory means? You are sinful if you do not do it. And you are rewarded for doing it. In Arabic, A obligatory action is any action which, if you do not do it, you'll be punished. But if you do do it, you'll be rewarded. That's the definition of an obligatory action. That is the word wajib. To make it clearer to you, this is the same definition for the word farz or farz. Like you packs use, yeah? Okay? Farz, yes? So farz, fard, wajib, lazim, all of these are synonyms, okay? Fard would be obligatory. Wajib would also be obligatory. Alazim means necessary. And so on and so forth. These are all phrases which are synonyms. However, in the Hanafi school, and this is essential, and we covered this, I think, at the end of year two. Not the end of the year two, in the middle of year two, uh, when we did the logical progression from Ilm Summit in London. Um, we covered the concept of, the, of why the Hanafis have certain different definitions for certain phrases that are well known and understood by other people. Why is it that uh, you will know that when you, uh, from your own background, witr is never considered to be a sunnah prayer, yes? And it's never considered to be a fard prayer, yes? In the Hanafi school is a new category, it's called witr wajib, yes? It is wajib, whatever wajib actually means. Now, I did explain this in detail why, what the reason for this is. And it is a complicated uh, process, but I will say this much, that you can go back to the lesson and see the detail. But the reason that the Hanafi school, and it's very interesting, they considered certain actions to be a category down from obligatory, but a category up from sunnah, or sunnah mu'akkada. What's sunnah? What's sunnah mu'akkada or mustahab? That's the recommended acts, yes? What's the definition of a recommended act? He is rewarded if you do it. 
وَلَا يُعَاقِبُ وَلَا تَرْكِهِ But you are not punished if you don't do it. That's the definition of a sunnah act, a mustahab act. You are rewarded for doing it, but you are not punished if you don't do it. So wajib, as far as the Hanafi school is concerned, it also has the same meaning as obligatory, except that, meaning that, according to the Hanafis, if you don't do it, you'll be punished. So witr prayer, for example. If you're a Hanafi, if you don't do witr prayer, you will be punished. And if you uh, do it, you will be rewarded. So then, they, then, then you might say, so why didn't they just call it fard? Why didn't they just call it obligation like, you know, like, like what they should do when the definition is the same? The answer is because anything according to the Hanafi school which is established in a speculative way, if there is a dhan, speculation in either al-thubut or al-dalala. What does that mean? What does that mean? There's two ways of understanding something. Either the evidence is very, very clear, the evidence itself, so for example, an ayah of Qur'an or a hadith or whatever, and it has only one possible meaning. It doesn't have any kind of possibilities. It is a very clear text and that's it. And it's authentic. If it's absolutely authentic, then there is no uh, speculation about its authenticity. Okay? The second way of understanding something is a text might be authentic, but the actual wording itself might potentially have two meanings. Or it could be understood in more than one way. So even though the text is authentic, the dalala or the indication from the text is potentially one of two things. Therefore, the indication is not qata'i. It is not absolute. It is also speculative. And so when you have a possibility of speculation or doubt, not necessarily doubt, but the possibility of there being some kind of alternative in either the authenticity of an evidence or the understood meaning of an evidence, then for the Hanafis they say, we're not going to call that thing, the ruling on that thing, a fard. And, and why is that? They say that if we were to treat that as an absolute obligation, then what are the consequences of something being called an obligation? You might be thinking, why are we having this discussion? What a semantic waste of time. Here's the reason why. Because if there was some, you know, some guy, okay, and he decided to come out and say, you know what? I don't think that prayer is, obligate, is obligatory upon me. You know, you know, you get Muslims who say, you know, Islam is in the heart and all this kind of nonsense, yeah? It's about being good Muslim and Allah knows my heart and I'm pure and I'm great and all the rest of it, yeah? And prayer is for people who, I don't know, whatever the kind of class they say. But I mean, you know you, you understand what I'm trying to say, yes? A person denies the obligation of the prayer, then what is the ruling upon this? Well, we're, we're going to see. We're going to see that in the next lesson, okay? What the actual ruling of denying an obligation is. But I can, we can jump the gun and say that anyone who denies an obligation, which is clear from the Quran or Sunnah, they have disbelieved. Anyone who denies the obligation. So Allah says, this is the obligation. You say, no, it's not. Then you have disbelieved. This is an act of kufar, and you become kafir as a result. Because it is an obligation which you are denying. However, if there is some doubt in the thing that you are denying, then we will not at all be the same kind of confident to say, you've done an act of kufr or you have gone out of the, the religion. Do you understand what I mean? So for example, if a person was to say smoking, I don't think smoking is haram. Allah doesn't say smoking is haram. There's no evidence for smoking being haram. Then we will stop and say, well, that's a problem you saying that because smoking is this, smoking is that. But whatever kind of argument we give, we will not be able to produce a clear nafs. 
Because there is no clear verse in the Quran that says smoking is haram, and there is no clear verse in the Quran in the hadith. Or, uh, uh, no, there's no clear hadith in the Sunnah that says that smoking is haram. And therefore, when there is speculation at the source level, either in the authenticity or in the understanding of the evidence, then we cannot then rule upon it in the same way as we would with a clear scenario of oblig of obligatory nature. Does that make sense? So that is the ramification. And by the way, vice versa, that's why the Hanafis not only have that extra category that's down from obligation and they call it wajib, but they also have then another category which is up from haram and that's called makru tahrimi. You might have heard that phrase as students of knowledge. This is makru tahrimi or makru tanzihi. This category is also a new and unique category to the Hanafi school, although later on some of the, the Shafi'is used it as well. This category is solely trying to describe that we are not confident enough to see this issue as clearly as we do as something completely haram. And so they create that subcategory. So I hope you understand this, uh, this difference. Now some scholars, I, just, I must say to you, even though this is inaccurate, they said this is just a matter of semantics. The Hanafis, their wajib is the same as obligatory, as fard. But it's not. I want you to know that it's not that uh, actually that the Hanafi school does legitimately and legally have two categories, uh, split categories, an obligation and call it wajib, call it a lesser obligation, call it what you want. However, let me just make it something, let me make something very, very clear. The word which is being used here is being used by Hanbalis, isn't it? Yes. And according to the Hanbali school, tajib, obligatory, means absolute obligatory. If this was a Hanafi text that we were reading, it would actually say fard. It would also say absolutely obligatory. Meaning there's no difference between any scholar in this nation, from the old or the present or the, the future, that will ever deny that to pray is an absolute individual obligation upon every single Muslim. Is that clear, everybody? Okay. Right. The next statement then, that the uh, that is said is is obligated ala kulli Muslim. It is obligated upon every Muslim, and by therefore by extension, that means it's not upon every non-Muslim. Now, what is the uh, evidence of that? Where does Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? Uh, where does the where do the evidences prove that? First of all. By the way, I should also just mention what are the evidences for the fact that it is obligatory. And so, um, first of all, we should make a statement. It is obligated by the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is obligated in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it is obligated by consensus of the companions and the scholars that come after. Now, this is called ijma'ah. The kitab, book, sunnah is the hadith and ijma'ah. The word ijma'ah means consensus. Consensus is of different types. The consensus of the companions is a very strong legal proof. And that is what we need if we want to try and prove something. Um, for example, there are some scenarios, there are some kind of you know, rare issues in fiqh where we can't find the evidence for it from in the Quran and we can't find the evidence for it in the sunnah. So what do we do with that matter? How do we rule upon it? Well, if we found that the companions all agreed upon that issue... The companions all agreed upon that issue. This would be an evidence. It would be a legal evidence binding upon the Muslims because we would say there is a consensus and ijma'ah of the companions. I want to go a little bit further. If the uh, ummah, the nation of the ulama as a whole also agree upon a point, then that's something which becomes very, very serious. Very, very serious. Okay, So there is an absolute consensus on the, the, the fact that the prayer is an obligation. And finally, there's another point as well. 
The prayer is of a unique category of obligations. What you've learned today is that the Hanafis have you know, two categories when it comes to the obligation. Yeah, although that doesn't apply here because the Hanafis consider the prayer to be absolutely a top obligation. You've learned that today. I'll tell you something else you're going to learn today. Even at the top level of obligations, there are differences in obligation. So for example, you have some things which are absolutely individually obligatory. And then you have a level higher which is called ma'alum fi dini bid darura. Ma'alumun fi dini bid darura. Known by necessity in the religion. This is the A-class, top, most obligatory thing possible. Those things which are obligatory or known by necessity. What does that mean? What does that mean? An obligation is an obligation is an obligation. That's straightforward and simple. You have to do it. I told you that you'll get rewarded for doing it. You will be punished if you leave it. If you deny it, you fall into kufr. That's what an obligation is. However, it is quite possible that some people will have not have heard of said obligation. Or will not know about said obligation. Or will not know, you know, when it happens or how it happens or why it should happen. For example, it is obligatory, for example, to leave a certain percentage of your wealth. For example, if a wife passes away, then half of her inheritance goes to the husband. Okay? That's an absolute obligation. An absolute obligation. Anyone who denies that would fall into kufr. Okay? Anyone who denies that would fall into kufr. However, because inheritance by itself is a more, you know, left field kind of subject, not the most obvious of sciences, something which people don't generally study or understand because it's by its very nature, it's mathematical and difficult. And by its occurrence, it only happens once in someone's life when they see it. Okay. By the nature of the thing itself, it is not something that we would classify in Islam as that is known by necessity in the religion. So, if there was a person on the street, Muslim, even practicing, and you put a microphone in, you know, in front of them and said, right, can you tell me how much a man is left, meant to leave, or a wife is meant to leave his, her husband when she passes? And she goes, or he goes, you know, the, the guy in the street goes, uh, all their money. You know? You wouldn't say, right, that's kufr, and you're finished, and whatever, Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? Even though they've, they've basically messed up on a really basic fundamental obligation. But it's not that basic. And it's not that fundamental. And it's not that obvious. However, if you were to ask a person, do Muslims pray? Okay? And a person said, well, to be honest, I'm not too sure about that. Then we've got a major problem. A major problem. Because that's like saying, that's like saying that do Muslim, who do Muslims worship? And someone's saying, I don't know. Or who is the name, what's the name of the last prophet? And the person saying, I don't know. Now, what I'm trying to say to you is that it's all good about being easygoing and, you know, chill with the people. But there's got to be a limit somewhere. There's got to be a point where you've got to say, listen, come on, man, stop having a laugh. And, and, and there's got to be some standards. Otherwise, we then fall into this kind of danger of irja. The murji'ah, of course, were a classical uh, uh, sect, a creedal sect back in the day. And the murji'ah, they were the opposite of the Khawarij. So the Khawarij were like, I mean, not technically opposite, but like almost like the opposite of the Khawarij. So the Khawarij as a sect in classical theology, they had all kinds of issues, right? But one of them was that certain actions will make you a kafir. An action will make you a kafir. Stealing makes you a kafir. Singing makes you a kafir. Major sins or whatever they can classify as major sins, they would make a person leave the religion. The opposite in the theology in the theological scale were the murji'ah 
They were so liberal that they said, anything that you do has no impact upon your Iman. Anything that you say has no impact upon your Iman. So anything goes, basically. And so therefore, if you have this in the modern times, if you have this kind of perennial kind of uh, uh, people, your per perennialism is this kind of idea that everything's all unified and religions are all the same and we're all on different journeys to God and, you know, he does, the Jew does it his way and the Christian does it his way and the bloody blah do it our way and we're all loving, you know, bakwas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah? That's nonsense. Then you start, to, you start to basically give no meaning to the Qur'an, the Sunnah. You don't give any meaning to rules, the principles, and so on. So there has to be standards. And that's why this category exists. That which is known in the religion by necessity. It's not possible for a person to deny its obligation. A person was to say that I do not think that one person has to pray. We would have to say that unless you have lost your mind, you are in big, big trouble. Legal trouble. However, if someone says, I don't think it's obligatory for a wife to give a husband uh, 50%, it doesn't sound fair. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But it doesn't sound right. No, no, that can't be right. We're not going to go in on them. We're going to say, right, listen, this is what Allah says, this, this is the system, this is the proof, blah, blah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's the very highest category. So what, I, what from the kitab, from the, from the Quran, what is the evidence? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ الصَّلَاةَ كَانَتْ عَنْ وَمِنِينَ كِتَابًا مَوْقُوتًا uh, that's Surah An-Nisa, verse 103, that indeed the prayer has been written upon the believers at prescribed, time, at prescribed times. Indeed, the prayer has been written upon the believers at prescribed times. Inna salata, verily, indeed, have no doubt that the prayer, alil mu'minin, upon the believers, kitaban, has been written meaning prescribed, meaning decreed, meaning done and sealed, mawquta, at set times. And that's absolutely clear as the sun. And of course, you know this kind of phrase of kitab, the word book, for it to mean a obligation is something quite common in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامِ كَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ As Allah says in the ayah of the psalm, that oh you who believe, uh, fasting has been written upon you, kutiba, from the same verb, okay, but in the passive form, as it has been written upon the people who came before you. Written meaning obligated. As for the sunnah, from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, then when the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, to Yemen, he said to him, أَعْلِمْهُمْ أَنَّ اللَّهِ افْتَرَضَ عَلَيْهِمْ خَمْسَ سَلَوَاتٍ فِي كُلِّ يَوْمٍ وَلَيْلَى Go and teach them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has iftarada, made fard, made fard, yes, upon them five prayers in every day and night. That's very clear text, and there's a hundred other hadith which would support this concept. As for the consensus, then as we said, there has never been any sound or any mention of anything other than that it's an obligation. There's not even a possibility that anything has been narrated. So it is a complete consensus, not just a silent consensus. You know, consensus can be of two types, right? There's a consensus when we all put our hands up and vote. And as you can imagine, that's a very powerful one. As opposed to a silent consensus where I say, are there any objections? And you know, it's a lot more difficult to object than it is to... Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Like a silent consensus is a legal consensus, but it's a weaker one than the other one, which is an affirmative one. And there is an affirmative consensus amongst the scholars of Islam. Okay. And it's obligatory upon every Muslim, as we said. And a Muslim is who? 
Who is a Muslim here in this text of the of the of the in this text here? What does he mean by by Muslim? It means a person who declares that Allah is to be worshipped alone and that Muhammad sallallahu is the final messenger. That's the understanding of um, that's the understanding of who Muslim is, not who is technically a Muslim. So when we say, and this is a this is a, a, a little cute point. When we say who is a Muslim, we'll say the one who says the, the, the shahadatain, and then the one who uh, uh, does, pays the zakah, the one who does hajj, the one who fasts. We've mentioned the five pillars of Islam, and that's correct. That's correct, of course. However, in this text here, when the author says it's obligatory upon every Muslim, he's actually only referring to the one who has made shahadatain. And you might say, what's the evidence for that? Why are you restricting the definition of, of, of Muslim to just the person who's just done these two and not the rest? The evidence for that is the same hadith of Mu'adh. The hadith of Mu'adh, when he sent him to Yemen, he said to him, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that let it be the first thing, the same hadith narrated by Bukhari. The Prophet said to Mu'adh, let the first thing that you call them to be, to be that, that they declare with, that they bear witness, that there's nothing worthy of worship except Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And if they respond to you positively, if they take that on, then teach them that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made obligatory upon them five prayers in a day and night. And if they, and then hadith goes on, it's a long famous hadith. If then they accept that, then tell them that is Ramadan. And if they accept that, then tell them that there is zakah. The zakah is a money which is taken from their aghniya'ihim or ila fuqara'ihim. It's taken from their rich and it will given to their poor. And, and so it's done in order than in order. So that's an important uh, point to uh, 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 note. The next point, the next point is um, the word mukallaf, okay? Because actually, there's a lot that we can uh, talk about in terms of uh, how it's not obligatory upon the non-Muslim. You see, I just want to say something. You know this whole discussion about non-Muslims um, and whether they are obligated to pray or not? Actually, it's a very big matter, okay? And it's something that doesn't fit right here, and we did cover it in quite a bit of detail in year one. And remember, uh, uh, that's going to keep happening. The reason we call this class Logical Progression is that we start from the beginning, cover the, the key things, and then it starts to build up logically so that we can progress smooth. So it would, be, it would be obviously contradicting our principles if we keep going back to stopping now and keep trying to reteach what we've already taught in this class. Again, the videos and audio are there, and the notes, of course, to read as well. I just want to summarize this issue. I want you to understand something very carefully. It is, in my opinion, if not the big quintessential question of our time, then certainly one of them to answer by the scholars. And that is, Are the non-Muslims um, tasked, tasked, or are they accountable to the Sharia? Are, do they have to uh, do what the Muslims have to do? That's the question. Okay? Does a non-Muslim, will a non-Muslim on your Qiyamah be asked about the Sunnah prayers that he didn't pray, the obligatory prayers that he didn't the pray, the hijab that she didn't wear, the, uh, 
Do you understand the point? Yes? Will they be or not? Because we know that for any action to be accepted, you have to have Iman. Okay? You have to have Iman. You have to be a Muslim for an action to be accepted as a Muslim, I mean. And so if you don't have Iman, you should say, well, that's the end of it. So then another question can be asked. Okay, that's fine. Um, if a person is not going to be obligated to the prayer, then what about drinking alcohol, for example? Drinking alcohol, will they be punished for that or not be punished for that? Because Allah has prohibited alcohol. So some people can say, well, you know what? They're not going to be punished. Uh, well, this is, let's, let's just give two examples. Yes, they will be punished because alcohol is haram. So then the people will say, well, you know what? If a person is being punished for the fact that they don't have iman, then that's more than enough punishment. Why do you care about yani, whether they, they are going to be punished for drinking or the small matters? That's why it's called furu'a, the secondary matters. When they're going to be punished for the, the primary matters, what do we care about the secondary? So that's a fair enough response, but it's an emotional response. So not an emotional response, it's a lazy response that doesn't deal with the legal kind of question. Right? The other response would be, no, non-Muslims are held accountable to their own laws. The non-Muslims are held accountable to their own laws and that the Sharia does not apply to them. Now this is a very interesting position. There are plenty of evidence to support this, plenty of evidence to support it, but it has a massive ramification in today's time. I mean, there are so many different things that come under this issue. And today I wrote an article on Halloween, for example. Okay? I mean, even in that kind of mundane thing about the issue of Halloween, that this principle would come into play. How does one interact with a person who is doing something which is permissible for them and their religion and their culture and their society, whatever, and impermissible for you. Does the fact that it's permissible for them change the level of, of accountability upon you for doing the action or reciprocating, for example? Or, as we discussed in the, the first one or two years, when it comes to impure things. Impurity, for example, gold. Gold is impure for the man, okay? Meaning that it's not uh, uh, permissible to wear. And likewise, silk. But the substances themselves are pure. Now, for non-Muslims, it is permissible for them to wear gold and silk. Is it permissible, therefore, for us to give our gold and our silk gifts to men to wear? We're not talking about women here, to men, non-Muslim men. Is it permissible for us to actually do something which is haram for people who it's allowed for? You will see at every level that there is a significant impact upon the issue. And as I said, I don't want to open up that, that door again because the scholars took many... Uh, 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 different positions. It's, it's enough for us to say that the maybe Allahu A'lam, the stronger position is that the non-Muslims are not accountable to the Sharia. That the non-Muslims are not accountable to the Sharia and therefore they are allowed to do things which is permissible in their religion. This, I don't want to say that it's a convenient opinion because of course it is. Because if you hold this position, it makes things a lot more convenient from many different angles from a Muslim point of view. But also the evidences would also suggest a lot of evidence to support this, um, like, 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 like uh, I'll give you just one example, just one example, just completely random. Uh, a brother asked me the other day that he has a company uh, where he's employing other non-Muslims, and as part of that company, they pay for um, uh, lunches and things like that. Yes, and the lunches I'm paying for the lunches. Okay, however, the lunches that are bought by the staff. The money I put in their hands, they go and buy bacon sandwiches with. Okay? So, 
Is it a pragmatic approach to say, well, I've given you the money and that's not my problem anymore. You do what you want with it. Okay. Or is it a case, I know that you're going to buy a bacon. I know that you're going to buy alcohol. I know that you're going to buy this, whatever. And therefore I should stop that because that's unethical or it's not good for society or it's haram, whatever. Do you understand yeah, any the ramification? Okay. There's so many applications of this. And this is, as I said, not an easy matter. I could speak to you in front of you for two hours and we would not solve it. It's something which requires a deep study, deep research. But anyway, in principle, I want to say that it seems that the correct position and or maybe the stronger position, and Allah knows best, that the non-Muslims are not held accountable to your laws and therefore it is permissible for them to do things even in front of you or even in your presence that you yourself do not find permissible and so on. I know there might be a few questions on that, but the reason I don't want to take that is because I am at pains to, to emphasize. We've covered this before. Questions have been answered before. And that's not what we, we care about now. We're here to focus on the salah and not upon this, this side point. Okay? So, what have we said? It's obligatory upon every Muslim. And now we come across a very important word. Every mukallaf. Every mukallaf. What does this word mean? Well, the Pakse will know a, a very a common word. The word taklif. Yes? Everyone, everyone knows. Anyone who's from... The, the, uh, anyone who's Arab or Asian or whatever... Um, they will, they will know the word taklif. However, when we hear the word taklif, what do we think? Pain. Difficulty. Pain. Carry on. <clears throat> Difficulty, pain, problems, and so on and so forth. Yeah? So what would that translation be then? We've translated it as? Legally responsible person. Yes? However, we're saying that the word is defined as pain and difficult and so on. So what's the connection? It's a what, sorry? Burden. A burden. So you think that a, a better linguistic translation, translation would be burden. Yes. And therefore, if you, consider, if you use burden as your, your dominant translation, then the connection between that and legal responsibility is? What's the connection between the two? How do we marry up then? And if you don't do it, then you are responsible for the actions so in the Right, okay, good. If you don't therefore do that action, then you are burdened by having to try and fix it. Yes, okay. This is a very interesting point, okay. Let, 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 me, let, let, me, let, me, let me put it to you a different way, as, as of course we're going to see now, all right. A child, okay, when they're a child, they live a very carefree life. They have no responsibilities, they have no burdens, yes. They don't need to worry about the bills. They don't need to worry about yeah, putting food in upon a table, whatever. So they don't have no taklif. They have no missions to think about. No stress to worry about. Okay? An adult, for example, has many of these stresses and worries to think about. Whole life is taklif. Okay? And, you know, uh, 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 think, about, think about anything. The whole life is full of difficulty. So when we say that the prayer is something which is only obligatory upon someone who is mukallaf, we mean someone who can actually take on that difficulty and for good reason. Because they're not a child, for example. Because they're an adult. Or because they're not crazy. How can we put someone who's insane, all right, someone who's insane, legally insane, how can, we, how can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punish a person who doesn't understand that they have to pray for not praying. It's not possible, is it? Okay? And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not made the insane one mukallaf. He's not legally responsible. 
How can a child who doesn't understand even the right and wrong of anything be punished for not praying when they don't understand? For them, it's just like up and down, up and down. You know, when the kids pray, it's amazing to watch them. They just have a look around, you know, do it for a couple of seconds. They get bored, they walk off. Yani, it's a chill. You know what I'm saying? And it's something because they don't feel the responsibility. They're not worried about it. So you have to be ahlan litaklif. You have to be. Uh, you have to be of the necessary conditions to be mukallaf. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that suggest that Islam is taklif? You know, when we go to someone's house, yeah, and they bring out, you know, they don't even try very hard, but they bring out maybe a cup of tea and maybe like three biscuits. It's oh, you had. You know? yeah, don't give, don't go put yourself to too much trouble. Even though, to be honest, they did nothing, yeah? But you say to them, oh man, don't put, you know, right? Don't put yourself out, you know? Don't, you know, go to too much difficulty. So we understand the word taklif very clearly in our minds to mean difficulty. So does that suggest, therefore, that Islam is also difficult? Or that it has difficulty? What do you think? Go on. So Allah, you're saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لا يكلف الله نفساً إلا وسعها. Allah does not burden a soul more than it can bear. Okay, you've quoted the verse to me. That's very nice. Okay, so it's not a burden. By the definition of the verse. That's what you're saying. Anyone else? Yes? Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says exactly the same. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want in your deen haraj. Allah does not want to cause difficulty for you in the prayer. So that's a very clear, t- uh, not prayer, in the deen, sorry, in the religion. So that's a very clear evidence. What you said is that Allah does, not, uh, Allah does not burden a soul more than it can bear. So you said, therefore, there is no burdens in Islam. That's what you said. Okay? <laughs> okay, okay yep. Yeah. It's a burden in the sense of responsibility. It's a burden in the responsibility. That's a very PC answer. Okay, so let me ask you, does that mean that a burden can be difficult or not? It can be painful. Okay, so are you feeling confident enough to say that some of Islam or all of it is difficult and, and hard and a pain? Of course. Jihad. Piece of cake. <laughs> Anyone? Anyone want to make the clear statement on the matter? Yeah. I think it's some evidence in concrete what the in concrete some of the words they put in the personal the message of Allah says that the most burdens and prayers from the hypocrites are the fragilization and congregation. Okay, good. So the brother saying that there's a hadith of course that says the most burdensome, okay, afqal, actually heaviest, okay of the prayers upon the hypocrites is the uh, uh, evening Isha and the Fajr prayer in congregation. What are you trying to say then? Does that hadith actually say that upon the non-munafiqeen, non-hypocrites, it's not burdensome? And that's why Arabic helps us more than the English. Because in the Arabic, أثقل means heavier, does not mean, or rather allows the potential for the normal people to find it heavy. Do you get it? And whereas it's super heavy 
and supermission, and because of that hypocrisy in the heart, okay, that, that mingles with Iman, that pure Iman that motivates us cleanly, and, you know, says, yeah, yeah, we'll go and pray, no problem, I don't care, whatever. So, there's a difference. I mean, we could go and talk about this, but let me just cut it straight to the point. Actually, Sheikh Muhammad Bukhtar Shankiti said something which is very nice and very straightforward, and I was hoping you say, but you didn't, okay? <laughs> that, 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 okay, I'll give you a chance, there you go. <laughs> I was going to say that. Go on. Go on. I think it is a burden in a sense that there are responsibilities that come to be. And so, of course, like all these things require patience from being obedient to Allah and all that. Good. Yes, yes. You see, I think what's very important for everyone is to not get, not allow me, because I'm obviously trying to confuse you on purpose. You know, I'm trying to play you guys, right? As you, as you, as, as you should have worked it out, yeah? To not lose sight of what I'm trying to say to you. I did not say that a burden, I didn't ask you, is a burden good or not? Is difficulty good or not? I said, is it a burden or not? Is it difficult or not? And a lot of people, and this is from their excellent niya and their, their beautiful iman, and I mean that, they feel shy to say something like that about their religion. But I'm here to tell you that there's nothing shy in saying that at all. This deen is a mission. Waking up for Fajr is a mission. Yani, uh, having a beard is a mission. Wearing a hijab, mission. Women would love to not wear hijab. We'd love not to be able to have to wake up yani, in the morning and maybe pray at 9 o'clock instead of you know, uh, 5 or whatever. And so on and so on and so on. So there's a difference between... So to say that it's difficult is not a problem. But we have to define difficulty. So first of all, we will say that the verse which says, is an actual proof that the religion is difficult. It's actually a proof. Because Allah said, Allah does not burden the soul more than it can bear. But He does burden it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah? So He burdens it, but not more than it can bear. Which proves to us that, as, well, as the brother said at the end, um, he said, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want in your deen haraj. doesn't want difficulty for in your religion. What difficulty? The difficulty that you can't handle. Because when it gets to that level, then everything that makes, starts, becoming, starts becoming permissible. So when you're starving, the pork becomes allowed. Once you're dying of thirst, the alcohol becomes allowed. Once you are in some kind of difficult situation, you don't even have to pray on time, as we will see, etc., etc., etc. There is no difficulty which you will be placed upon you, obligated upon you, that the human can't handle. As for... The, the, as for everything underneath that limit, we're not saying it's not difficult. We're saying that that's the sacrifice that you make to get Jannah. That's it. And as, as, the, as the Prophet ﷺ said, that Jannah that Jannah is surrounded by difficulties. Surrounded by difficulties. That's a hadith sahih. The only way you get to Jannah is through by, by breaking through the difficulties. And whereas the Jahannam is surrounded by shahawat and the easy things and lackadaisical lions and, you know, the chills and the avoiding of X, Y, Z. That's what Jahannam is. That's what Jannah is. So we shouldn't be ashamed of saying this deen is difficult. You know, وَتَوَاسَوْ بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاسَوْ بِالْمَرْحَمَةِ وَتَوَاسَوْ بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاسَوْ بِالْصَبْرِ You know that the believers are always being told to encourage each other to be patient, to call to the truth. Because it's difficulty. The concept of istiqamah, steadfastness. Yani, what's the point of yani, the, talking about steadfastness if to be steadfast is not difficult? So it's not, uh, not a problem for us to understand that there is some difficulty. But the key thing to understand is that difficulty is nowhere beyond our limitations. We are completely able to do them. And when we don't do them, it's not because it was too difficult, it's because you were just useless. Or you were lazy. Or you were ignorant. Or you, it's the problem being you. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the perfect hakim. 
the law legislator, and he does not put anything upon the, the, the slave that, that, that they cannot handle. So, I want you to uh, keep that in point. Now, um, Taklif, legal responsibility, has two conditions. Actually, I said it. The point that I made, which made look made look really really clever, that was Sheikh Shankrit's point. That the ayah illa is the proof that the religion is difficult. That was what Sheikh Shankrit said. Actually, not just Sheikh Shankrit. Actually, many of them, Mufassirin said that. And it depends who you give credit to. You can give it to me. It's no problem. I always take credit. Yeah, I'm, I'm very very accommodating kind of guy like that. Okay. So there's two conditions for taklif. For the concept of legal, resp- legal responsibility. Okay? Now we're not talking about the linguistic meaning of taklif, meaning difficulty. We're not talking about the legal concept of taklif. Legal responsibility. What are the two conditions to obtain legal responsibility? You have to be sound. Very good. Al-aql. Okay, sanity. Alright? That's the first. So you have to have clear mind, be able to perceive everything. That's the first. And the second... Okay, maturity. You have to be post-pubescent. You have to be not a child anymore, basically. And that's something very, very specific. It does not mean that you are able to think, because a 10-year-old is able to think, and an 11-year-old is able to think, and a 12-year-old is able to think, but they might not have gone through maturity. They might not have gone through uh, uh, puberty. And so therefore, even though they understand, even though they're, you know, they're sensible and whatever, but they will not be held legally accountable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala until they actually become mature, physically, sexually, hormonally, properly mature. In every, you know, in every essence of the, of the concept and the word. Does that make sense? Yes? So these are the two conditions. Bulugh and for uh, 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 and, um, sanity. And of course we covered bulugh in Kitab al-Hayyad. We covered the, the uh, signs of that in the male and the female. I'm not going to obviously cover that. And there is some evidence for this. There is a famous hadith. And some scholars, they question the authenticity of this, I must say. But the majority <laughs> considered it to be authentic. The majority considered to be authentic, and certainly its meaning is well agreed upon. And that's where the Prophet ﷺ said, رُفِعَ الْقَلُمُ عَنِ الثَّلَاثَةِ عَنِ الْمَجْنُونِ حَتَّى يُفِيقُ وَعَنِ الصَّبِيحِ حَتَّى يَبْلُغُ وَعَنِ النَّائِمِ حَتَّى يَسْتَيْقَدُ That the pen has been lifted from three people. The insane one until he regains his sanity. From the young one until he becomes mature, بَالِغ And from the sleeping one until he wakes up. Three people, three categories, yes? The insane one is not held legally responsible. Anything that happens when you are insane, you are not... That's why, of course, uh, this is obviously copied in all the civil kind of uh, courts around the world and civil legal systems. So if you are, uh, uh, you know, if you kill someone and you plead insanity and they prove that you are insane, then you will not be uh, guilty of murder or manslaughter. You you understand that basic concept, yes? That uh, obviously pleading insanity is an excuse for one's actions. And the one who's asleep, then this is something which is we've seen in some test cases recently that certain actions happened while people were asleep, including rape, including murder, including so on. And the, the courts are really struggling. I'm talking about the, 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 the civil English law courts, common law, not talking about Islamic. But even in Islamic law courts, you'll find this in the, in the books of fiqh and so on. What that happens during their sleep, we do not hold people accountable. I'm giving it all the kind of dramatic kind of thing. The basic thing is prayer. So if you don't pray because you are asleep, and the sleep was not something that you caused, meaning that, you know, 
you know that you're very, very tired and you keep staying awake and you keep watching a film or you keep playing around or you keep staying outside and you know that you should go to sleep, otherwise you're going to miss the prayer, then you are the result of that and you're going to be in big trouble. But let's just say, for example, you know, innocent sleep and you fell asleep and you didn't hear the alarm, you put the alarm on, didn't, didn't hear the alarm, then you will not be held accountable for the prayer that you missed in terms of sin. You have to make it up and of course we're going to come to that. You have to make it up, but we have to uh, understand that there's two parameters when you miss something. There is the fact that you've got to make it up and there's a factor whether you are punished or not. Yes? You've got to keep them separate. Sometimes you might have to make something up and you are punished. Sometimes you have to make something up and you are not punished. I'll give you some examples of that later. So the insane one is scot-free. The one who is sleeping off scot-free, the, 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 the pen being lifted, you understand what that means, right? His actions are not being written down or recorded by the angels. That's what it means, yeah? Because they're not legally responsible. And the uh, child, until they become mature. So that's the person who is also... Um, uh, 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 that's also someone who's not uh, obligated. Now, the next statement says, okay, well, not the next statement, but it's going to come in a second, that if a person, uh, if a child is seven or ten, then they are to be physically disciplined. Actually, yodrab means beaten, okay, in the Arabic. But the problem is, is that if you translate it as beaten, you lose the whole meaning of the word because, of course, there are so many caveats with that beating in terms of marking and whatever, and which are all prohibited, and it's therefore... Uh, uh, it's not a, a one of punishment, it is one of warning. Okay, so all of these are lost when you say the word beaten because in our common society or culture, you say beaten, it means, you know, giving the guy a good battering, isn't it? Yeah? There's no kind of, you know, little beating and a, ba- and a big beating. It's a beating. So, but physically disciplined is slightly more nuanced, a more kind of accurate phrase. And so when we say that, it means that, you know, something which is not necessarily uh, a very painful thing or whatever. And we'll talk about it in a second. But the question is that if the prayer is not obligated, as we said, upon a child, so why would the child then be threatened at seven or rather uh, commanded at seven, I beg your pardon, and to be threatened at ten? Why? That's the only reason, okay? It is purely to prepare. It's, it's fully only to, to get rid of that stubbornness that children have, that laziness that children have. It is not a sign of, it's not a sign that this has now become legally responsible. And never should you think so. So there is still laxity at the age of seven and at the age of ten if a prayer is not prayed. There is a legal laxity. A person is not going to be held accountable. Do you understand that? There's a, that subtle difference between the two is essential to understand. Okay? Yes, Musa. Um. <clears throat> yes. Are they rewarded for good deeds they do? Sorry. The question. The question is, what about the good deeds that children do? Are they rewarded for that when they are pre-pubescent? And this is a area of of discussion amongst the scholars. But inshallah, they are. The reward is 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 safe for them, and we have enough evidences to suggest that, that exactly that's what happens. The hadith of the child doing Hajj is the most uh, famous example. And we know that they get that reward. However, the question should be asked, does that mean that they don't have to do the hajj afterwards? No. So the hajj counts in terms of reward, but it doesn't count in terms of legally fulfillment. They have to still do it when they are older. So yes, a child will get the reward, inshallah. And we, we, we hope for that. We hope for that. There's no clear evidences one way or the other, but and we understand from the general evidences. So then the text says that not, neither, the men, but this is obligatory upon every Muslim, um, legally responsible Muslim, okay. However, except the who, the had and the fusa, menstruating woman and those that are suffering 
uh, nifas, postpartum bleeding. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. And the reason for that is the Prophet ﷺ said, is it not that when you, is it, is it not that when the woman menstruates, she does not pray and does not fast? Hadith narrated by Muslim and Bukhari. Okay? Is it not that when a, Muslim, when a, when a woman menstruates, she doesn't pray? She doesn't pray and she doesn't fast. And so therefore, that's something which is by agreement of the scholars. Now, um, I think, I think that I'm going to pause it there, okay? And the reason I'm going to pause it there is because the stuff that was, that's remaining before we uh, deal with the next subject is significant. And I want to try and keep that uh, together. I want to try and keep that part together. So let's just ask any, let's answer any questions that are specifically on today's uh, matter that we covered today. Anybody? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so the brother is asking that there's one thing about children doing good deeds whilst they're young and whether they get the reward for that. But what about the understanding that their parents will? Will they or not? And the answer is, of course, they will. Every good deed that a parent shows to a child or is involved in facilitating for the child, they get the reward for that. They get the reward for that from many different angles, from a tarbiyah angle, from a responsibility Allah has put upon them, the, the fact that these are their, their sheep, their ra'iyah, uh, uh, what's the word, the flock, okay? Right? They get the reward for that, for, for fulfilling that responsibility. They get the reward of the Prophet, they get the reward which the Prophet specified that whoever initiates a good sunnah, Okay, then they will get the reward of those people who do it and those that follow them without any decrease in the reward of the people who do it. So I get that collected all the time. So there's no doubt that the parents will also get the reward likewise. Yes? Um, about non Muslims, if they do a good action, as in halal action, would it be um, rewarded? For so the question is, is that, so likewise, if, if it's understood that the non Muslims are not held accountable according to the Sharia, then. Um, and therefore, and therefore, the prayer is obligatory upon them. What about their good actions? Will that be accepted or not? And this is an interesting discussion, and a lot more complicated than you might think. Okay, uh, because you would have thought, well, how can a good action be um, accepted? How can a good action be accepted when the basic condition of an action to be accepted is not there? I.e., faith. Okay, iman. And we would say, yeah, there's no problem with that uh, understanding and no, n- nothing benefits the, the non-Muslim in the Akhirah. Except, of course, that we have this narration which, is, which, is, which causes us a problem, quote-unquote, and that is the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, who was very good to the Prophet ﷺ and helped him in his time of need. And what it did in some kind of manner is that it reduced his punishment. I mean, even the reduction was not something that we can consider to be a reduction at our level, but I don't know. Uh, so uh, some of the scholars said that yes only in reduction of punishment not in actual kind of uh, amassing of reward or good deeds whatever it's a bit of a theological kind of no it's a bit of a a philosophical kind of a point and there's more detail for that but I don't really think this is the time or the place for that yes Yes. 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 It's a really, really, it's a really good question. And actually, Sheikh Uthameen himself, he goes into quite a significant bit of detail about it. The brother asked, he said, look, 
He said, in our society today, the one thing that we know for certain is that people are not at the same level of maturity. And that people look at, you know, especially when it comes to diet as well. This diet that we eat and the foods that are modified and so on, they do have actual very clear physical effects upon our body, which do not represent a true psychological or mental or spiritual development inside. Or it could be vice versa as well, frankly. Okay, but that's the, obviously the, rare, the rarity. The more obvious thing is that we go through the physical signs of maturity, we go through puberty and so on and so forth, but the person is not mature in thinking. Do we treat the people the same? And Sheikh Uthameen has a long discussion about this. He says, is... When it comes to the entire concept of legal responsibility, of taklif, is the actual hukam, okay, uh, what we call, what we call in, when we, uh, in sharia, tahqiq al-manat, yani is, the, is the actual thing related to puberty per se, or an understanding which should come as a result of puberty? And likewise, when it comes to distinguishing, tamyiz we call it, people will generally say amongst the scholars that, it's the seven-year-old that's the one who's told that you need to start praying now, son, because, you know, and the reason why the age seven is mentioned is because that's the most common age where someone knows, knows right from wrong. It's the age where you send a kid out to go and buy something because you know that they're going to know the concept of money and change and so on. However, we know that there are certain seven-year-olds that we wouldn't trust of anything, of any kind of money, or to go out anywhere. And we also know that there are some incredibly bright six-year-olds. And so do we change our understanding of the hadith according to modern day realities and differences in age and so on and so forth. And that's a big question. The, the answer for now is this, is that there's no doubt that if there was a 15 year old who had the mental age of someone far younger, then they would not be held legally accountable regardless of their body. Let me make that very clear. But that's easy, that's lazy fit. The more difficult one is, what if there's someone younger who shows the, you know, the intellectual ability and so of someone who is mature and older. That's much more difficult. And I believe though, as Sheikh Uthameen said, that the nos is the nos. The text is the text. And for example, when it comes to the prayer, you would never discipline a child at the age of nine. Sheikh Uthameen says that. I don't hold it permissible at all to physically discipline a nine-year-old because the text says 10, even if this nine-year-old has the brains of a 13. So... I know I said different things, but I just want to acknowledge it's a really good point, and that it's an area that can accept some study and research, but in principle, that's the two kind of parameters that we can use. Okay? This is the last question. Yeah. Um, so just during the winter season, obviously, the time solar is very, very tight. Yes. And during work, it's difficult. Sure. That's something which we'll come to in about five years' time. We can't, we can't deal with that. I mean, for, for, the, for, the, for the sake of just your question... It is permissible as a one-off for someone who is in a very difficult situation to, to deal with, but it can't be taken as a regular habit to be combining prayers because of winter and so on. But if a person has a, you know, a very rare situation where because of the time and constriction they need to pray, uh, combine that dhuhr and asr because of that rare scenario, then as a rarity it's allowed. We don't like to open that door because as packs, you know, once that door's open, we're all through it, yeah? And then it's every day combining, 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 yeah, sheikh's there, fatwa, khalas, yeah. And we can't do that, right? So... Uh, uh, we'll call it that. So, inshallah, um, what did I want to say? Next lesson we have, mashallah, special guest. Oh, no, no, oh, sorry, online, online, online. Sorry, guys, because we can't disrespect yani, the, the serious people, yes. Anyone who denies an obligation, i.e., becomes a kafir and leaves the fold of Islam, and if someone rejects a wajib, does not leave the fold of Islam. According to the Hanafis. That's correct. Yes, that's correct. That statement is correct. Um, are we supposed to wake someone who is asleep, for example, a child? Or That's a coming later. later.
If a girl reaches puberty earlier than normal, is she accountable for any prayer that she misses as she doesn't really That's pray? coming later. That's the next, that's the two lessons time, inshallah. Since an insane person is not responsible for Salah, then what about the people who are schizophrenic? schizophrenic Good question. So, since the insane person is not responsible for the prayer, what about those people who have other conditions? And the answer is that anyone who takes the general ruling of an insane person, i.e. not in control of their, their intellect or their sanity, then they are also not accountable for the prayer. That it's not right for me to say that the schizophrenic is not accountable for the prayer because that's absolutely incorrect because schizophrenia is of different levels. Some people are well aware of themselves and in control. It doesn't matter that they have a different identity. Within each identity, they still know who they are and what their obligations are. So it's important to understand that whatever mental illness we apply the ruling to, it is dependent upon the characteristics of that mental illness. Do they understand what they're being commanded to do? Once they do not understand, then the prayer is lifted from them. However, if they understand but they have difficulties, then each person is on a case-by-case -case basis given a ruling with respect to the obligation of the prayer. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best.